This is Salt and Spine. I think I always had in the back of my mind at some point, because I was obsessed with cookbooks, that I wanted to write a cookbook. Writing a cookbook requires a sustained passion about a topic. And I never came up with anything that I thought, well, that I thought was a good enough idea until I came up with the Rome one. Hi there, I'm Brian Hogan-Stewart, and you're listening to Salt and Spine, stories behind cookbooks. You just heard from today's guest, Christina Gill. Now, Christina is a native of Nashville, Tennessee, who has spent the better part of the last two decades living in Rome. You'll learn in today's conversation that Christina's relationship with food began on TV commercials and continued into Carbonara. And her resume ranges from working in the Foreign Service to serving as food and drinks editor of the now-defunct Design Sponge website. Christina's first cookbook, Tasting Rome, Rome was inspired by conversations she'd have with taxi drivers all around Italy's capital city. And as you'll hear in our conversation, they almost always related to food, and with a surprising level of passion. It wasn't long before Christina knew she had the makings of a great cookbook in her notebooks, filled with handwritten recipes that she'd scrawled in the back of taxi cabs. So she partnered up with a co-author, signed with a major publishing house, agreed to shoot all the photographs herself, and got to work. And while tasting Rome, the cookbook, and Christina's work to document Cucina Romana is worth celebrating. If you're a regular listener to our show, or if you've followed cookbook industry news this year, you may know that Christina's experience wasn't one worth celebrating. The publishing process and her relationship with her co-author consistently devalued Christina's work, marginalized her contributions, and perpetuated long-standing practices rooted in white supremacy. If you want to hear more specifics about this process from Christina, please go back and listen to our series earlier this year, titled titled A Food Media Awakening. But I'm here today holding Tasting Rome, and Christina's work and images are glimpses into the simple, highly regional foods you'd find in most trattorias around the city, building on 2,000 years of culinary history. You'll find everything from classic Roman pastas like the cacio e pepe and amatricana to more modern takes on Roman cuisine as it's evolved with the city. We have a great conversation for you today. Christina joined us remotely from, of course, Rome to talk about the role food has played in her life, how she approaches her work, and where she turns for inspiration. Plus, of course, we're playing a game and putting Christina to the culinary test. You won't want to miss it. The only preview I'll give you is it involves bank robbery and tofu blocks. So let's head now to our virtual studio where Christina Gill joined us to talk cookbooks. Hi, Christina. Thanks so much for joining us on Salt and Spine. Thanks for having me back. Yes, it's great to have you back. We talked... um, I don't know. Time is such a strange concept these days. What was that? Two months ago that we talked? Maybe I think in June, maybe. I don't know. I don't remember. That sounds right. Yes. And we're we're glad to have you back and talk a little bit more about um, your life, your influences, how you sort of got into food and cookbook writing. Um, And we always like to start with our guests sort of at the beginning. So I know you, you grew up in Nashville. Is that right? Yes. And I would like to return there. And what role? Yeah. Yes. Let's come back to that. But I want to hear first about the role that food played in your life when you were growing up as a kid. Where, what sorts of things were you eating? What do you remember about food and experiences? I remember nothing about the food I really ate as a child. It was not a, an important part of my life then. I was thinking, though, the other day, I remember when I heard the news that the Sizzler chain was going out of business I remember when I was little, there used to be a wet, it was called Western Sizzler, I think. I think they must have rebranded at some point, if I didn't ignore me. But let's just pretend that that used to be the name of it. And I remember going there when I was little. But basically, in a small, sleepy, podunk town, however many years ago, I don't want to date myself, in the last century, there weren't a lot of food experiences. (laughs) You know, they were chain restaurants. Right. And were you eating out a lot? No. no. <laughs> I'm sorry to laugh, like, for no reason. It was just a memory. So I can tell you my food memories were, I, okay, I don't want to date myself, but I'm going to say again. I remember rice commercials and being intrigued as a young person about the trolley on the rice like, you know, rice the San Francisco treat, and the ding, ding, ding of yes. the trolley. I remember food commercials, uh, Annette Funicello, Funicello, she did Skippy. No, she did Peter Pan peanut butter. 
um, choosy moms choose GIF. Um, uh huh. Yes. And uh, which is true because I think GIF is the better peanut butter. <laughs> Goober at the supermarket, which my brother, I think that, and he he might still be this way. He never ate anything but peanut butter and jelly sandwiches. My brother did never, never. Okay. For as long as I, he's seven years older than I am, so. He would have left home when uh-huh. I was about 12. So for the first 12 years of my life, all he ate was peanut butter and jelly. Literally, that is all he ate. If I had to go down to the grocery store to get groceries, because we lived close enough that I could walk to the grocery store. I spent a lot of time on that aisle and I remember Goober. We never bought Goober, but I remember Goober. Do you know Goober? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. The, um, it was the, the mixture, right? Like yeah, they were sort of layered so, inside the car. Right. <laughs> yes. Of the, uh-huh. of the yes of the jelly and the peanut butter together um there was not a right. lot of jam in the supermarkets then like preserves it was really a lot of jelly i mean you didn't start to get preserves which i guess is more sophisticated until uh, a little bit later but so my the memories i have of food as a child are really what i saw on television but we didn't i can't say that we ate a lot of uh, oh i remember hamburger helper uh, oh, yes. Shake and bake, uh, uh-huh. stovetop stuffing, and the kid calling the parents and saying, "What are we having for dinner?" Oh, I'm staying. You know, I'm staying over here. Um, <laughs> so my whole life, and maybe not just in food, but everything, has a very heavy television commercial imprint. And I can tell you all the slogans from every company. Everything's better with blue bonnet on it. So like that. And anyway, you don't want to get me started, but that's my food memory as a child. Now, I didn't necessarily eat all those things um, because, you know, my family wasn't sure. about buying junk or s- wasting money at the supermarket. And also <laughs> South. Do you know what South is? Where are you from? No. Where are you from? I'm from Iowa, the Midwest. They'll Midwest, have, Iowa. Okay. They will certainly have South there. Um, South is, okay, so Chuck Grassley is one of your guys. Um, So Yeah, unfortunately. (laughs) But Chuck Grassley is funny. South is um, like, it's all the scraps of the pig and gelatin. And so it's like all the the hoofs and the everything. I don't, anyway, it's in gelatin. And so I remember how the aisles were because the cold cuts were on the back wall so I would cover my eyes and scream and run past that. And I ran past the beach uh-huh. as well. I, I spent a lot of time in trouble also because once a week, <laughs> okay. I was, I was <laughs> once a week I was screaming and running in the supermarket, just in those places <laughs> because I just couldn't, not even the sight of this food could I stand. I wasn't smart sure. enough to avoid the aisles. So right. <laughs> those are my food memories. <laughs> Yes, it sounds like food marketing was sort of what you um, took away from that period of your life. And then you sort of you're you're in high school, you're thinking about college, food is not part of the picture in terms of a profession, a career, right? You're interested in foreign service predominantly. Is that right? No, food was not even no, I didn't get interested in food until my last year of for last year of university. Okay. And and so you went to Stanford. Stanford and then and then right away went into the to the masters and went into foreign service was that sort of your career path that's the sequence yeah so I got interested in food uh from being in Italy and you were in Italy for the foreign service well yes that too but I did my first year of my master's in Bologna but uh, the last year of um so I did a year undergrad also in Florence and I came back in my senior year I was in the Italian house when I was in Florence, this is, I guess, I was reading this book about this little boy. It's a very a little mischievous boy, and I learned the passages like by memory in this book. And that's for me anyway. I was learning the tenses, the Italian tenses, because I think they have like eight tenses. Uh-huh. And I would sit on a chair during my um, when I was studying in Stanford and, and talk to the cook in the kitchen while he was preparing the food every day. And I would tell him passages from the book that I knew from memory. And so it was just like, oh, well, I was learning Italian that way, but I was also learning to cook. Um, I think he was Neapolitan, cooking regular old food, but he wasn't cooking Neapolitan food. But yeah, I did weird stuff like that. So I was just sitting there 
telling him passages from books. And every so often he thought I was telling him real things that happened. And then people would have to tell him, <laughs> no, she's telling you stuff from a book. And, right. and then when I went back to Stanford, I stayed in the Italian house and I spent a lot of time in the kitchen with the Italian cook there. I don't even remember. I didn't tell him any passages from books, but, you know, just learning about food, cooking and stuff. He was not a chef or anything. He was an ex-taxi driver who um, just picked up a job there. Then in Italy, when I went to Bologna, that was a completely different experience because then that is a different cuisine altogether because you have the filled pastas like the tortellini. You have the tigelle, which are like... um, Oh, let's just call them like a tortilla, but it's not really a tortilla, but it's a flat bread type of thing. So that was a new cuisine. Uh-huh. And that's where I learned about slow food. And I got the slow food book, the first book. And then I became obsessed with collecting more books. And then when I went back to Washington for the second year of my master's program, well, I'd spent a lot of time then with friends' moms and learning to cook. And when I went back for my master's program, that's when I went really like head over heels into cooking. There was an online shop then. I can't even remember the name of it, but it was the first online shop, like really big shop that was selling kitchen appliances. So that's where I got my KitchenAid mixer, my KitchenAid, what's that thing called? Food processor. I still have both. Uh Um, Amazon Uh started right about then, but I'm dating myself. Great Chefs, Great Cities was on TV then. I used to dance down the street singing the Great Chefs, Great Cities song with my friend. Wherever we were, right before it was supposed to come on, we would run back to the apartment and watch Great Chefs, Great Cities. Whole Foods back then was Bread and Circus, Fresh Fields, and Whole Foods. And they had to have the competition to choose a name. And everyone chose Fresh Fields. So they rebranded as Fresh Fields. And then all of a sudden, poof, they became Whole Foods. So I was, that year, I I made everything. I made all my bread. I made pasta. I made all my tomato preserves. I made all my cakes from scratch. I worked at Williams-Sonoma for six days. That was the contract. It was just a seasonal contract. So I could get a discount, but the seasonal discount is not as good as the part-time or a regular discount. So sure. uh, that's my retail experience. And it was it was so depressing because people would come in there and it's like, oh, I'd like to buy this for my husband for Christmas. And it was like, you know, a $3,000 grill. And I was like, oh my God, I could eat with $3,000 for like five years. Because, <laughs> you know, when you're in graduate right. school. <laughs> yeah. Um, yes. Dean and DeLuca existed then. Uh, so there were a lot of the icons of the... Oh, why don't I just go ahead and say it? Of the 90s <laughs> that were uh, really yes. big back then. Oh, I remember the Clinton inauguration, Clinton 2. That was the coldest day on the face of the planet. I did not leave my apartment. The wind was so bad. It almost blew the apartment building down. But I watched it on oh. the news. That's the year that Forrest Gump came out. Um, but anyway, so that was food for me. So it it seems like it was like you almost just fell right in, right? You sort of had some of these experiences and then you're you're cooking everything, you're baking your own bread, you're making pasta. At that point, was it sort of like a inclination that maybe there was a career path there for you? Maybe. That's when I started buying lots of cookbooks. And I think maybe at some point I wanted to like, I want to start a cafe. I want to do something in food. And everyone I worked with said, no, you're sick. Something's wrong with you. Don't do it. So I didn't. And so this this is just to get the timing right. This is happening while you're finishing your master's. Uh huh. So you you finish your master's and, and then you go into foreign service. Is that right? And you, you get a placement in Italy, right? At the Holy See? At Holy See? Yeah. The first two years I was in Washington doing conventional arms control. Okay. And and were you finding that to be rewarding? Like you, you'd sort of been on that path for a while to do foreign service. Was that, were you feeling redeemed by that choice? So my first tour in Washington, that was uh, conventional arms control. Yes, I had very many smart colleagues. Like I worked with the best of the best. And I mean, the people who I worked with then are the people who you see 
as ambassadors and in the spotlight for our country now, like the office that I was in. So they were the high flyers. And so it was very uh, engaging. I I wouldn't necessarily say that the work in and of itself was engaging, but I did have a chance to use my brain then. Then I got an assignment at the Holy See that was supposed to be public diplomacy. And that was for the Jubilee year, 2000. It was a difficult assignment working with the Vatican. Uh, For me personally, some of my colleagues had had a better time with it. And then I did the bilateral, I did some economics, because I was an economic officer and some consular work. I think probably the most rewarding work was consular, because I was helping people. And, you know, somebody comes in with a need for something, and you help them out, and they go away. Sometimes they were mean. The people who came in, like, who were the ones who were more, had more difficult personalities that everyone termed and I'm going to put air quotes here, crazy. I don't use that word crazy, except to refer to like pandemonium. They always gave them to me and I built great rapport with all those people. And they always would come back and um, ask for me. And I found that to be really rewarding and fun. And then I left the foreign service. That was a long time ago. And, um, I think I always had in the back of my mind at some point, because I was obsessed with cookbooks that I wanted to write a cookbook. So over time, I think, I don't know, I thought of ideas, but uh, I think I may have mentioned this to you before. Writing a cookbook requires a sustained passion about a topic. And I never came up with anything that I thought, well, that I thought was a good enough idea until I came up with the, with the Rome with the Rome one. And that was something that was really, because I could do the photography and I could do all that stuff. So that was good. I did have a little blog for a while where I did food stuff. And then I started doing in the kitchen with for uh, design sponge. And then the book came toward halfway through that. And was the blog sort of your first thing? Am I getting it right? It was called three layer cake. Yes. Don't tell people that. Oh, okay. Sorry. <laughs> is it still out there? Can we still find no, it? Not, Should I not well, be revealing I'm, it? I'm, I'm sure that there's some artifact of something somewhere. Basically what <laughs> happened, I, I went to on a work trip for two weeks. And while I was gone, some, or well, I was gone for three weeks, some awful person hacked my site and the code, the malicious code was so embedded that in order to fix it, I just would have had to start the site all over again. And it was basically like three years worth of stuff. It was not recoverable. Wow. So I just, it just died a painful virus. That was probably like the precursor to COVID. It died a painful virus ridden life. Yeah. That's awful. Yeah. What a bummer to lose all of that work. But I kept all the friends. So let's, let's go to tasting Rome in a second, but what I want to also bring in another element of your work, which is photography. Like, is that a lifelong thing for you? When did you sort of decide you were going to be interested in learning how to become a photographer as well? So that happened because when we were doing Design Sponge, we started changing, you know, at the beginning, Grace was using clips from magazines and product provided, brand provided photography of the images. And as we started to move into home tours, those had to be professional photography. And so over time, slowly, we had to make sure that the entire site was delivering a certain level of a, a standard. The brand had to be standard across the site. And so I sure. start, I had to learn. And so I learned and I became passionate about that. I'm not really passionate about food photography anymore. And I haven't used my camera in really since the book. So what are we now? Okay. I turned in my photos in 2015. I have not picked up the camera since 2015, but I want to do that. Now is my time to go and really get back to photography, but other subjects. Outside of food. Yeah. Some seascapes, some nature. I'm not really interested in landscapes, but I want to do the part of photography that when you're out and about taking pictures, not necessarily in the city, but 
where you're just in the where you are living in the present and that's where right that's where i want to be so you you mentioned that taking on a cookbook project of any kind requires a a commitment to an idea, a commitment to a theme. And folks may know if they've listened to our past conversation to sort of how the idea for the Rome cookbook came to be, but we might want to just revisit it before we talk about the book more. So you were taking taxi cab rides frequently, right? I think before your work. Yes. And I would like to say that, I mean, I don't normally do this for professional reasons, but I manage a, a relationship with World Food Program, and they won the Nobel Peace Prize right. today. So, if any World Food Program employees happen to hear this, congratulations, good work. You're worth a million euro or kroner. What are they paid in dollars? No. <laughs> anyway, you've done good for the world, and congratulations. Yeah. Um, and it's about an hour ride out there, and so because I'm interested in people and their stories and taxi drivers are interested in foreigners because they like to sell Italian culture and the easiest in for uh, Italian culture is to talk about the food or soccer. If you know soccer, sure. Then there you go. I mean, sometimes Uh I've had cab drivers who don't follow soccer and I'm like, Oh, well, what are your passions? And they're like, none. (laughs) <laughs> and I'm like, well, that's sad. <laughs> yeah. But um, soccer or nothing. <laughs> but uh, yeah. So um, that's it. They're, most of the conversations are about food. So um, I started to write down these things. I, I can't get up now because my headphone cord isn't long enough. But on my Instagram feed, I have the little notebooks that I kept that had the recipes in them. And at a certain point, I had. I don't know, over a hundred recipes. Some of them were similar with variations like carbonara. You would have, you know, a difference of combinations of egg yolk, egg white, all that stuff. Uh Uh, But once I got to over a hundred recipes, the light bulb went off my head, off over my head. And I said, I could, uh, Oh, here's my cookbook idea. Yeah. Did that change the, all of those conversations you were having with taxi drivers, did that change how you thought about food? on on an individual basis? No, I already knew what they were going to tell me. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Sure. Because, because, you know, when you, um, I don't know. Okay. Look, I I like to make things up. So right now I'm going to make something up, but I think I seem to remember when I did my, um, like when you did your lab reports or your science projects, you had to write down what you thought the outcome was going to be. Uh-huh. And then you did your experiment and and then you analyze the results and write your conclusion. That's right. Yeah. I vaguely remember that. Yeah. I vaguely remember that because I'm so old. And uh, my hypothesis when I said I'm going to start asking taxi drivers what their favorite food is to see what they tell me, my hypothesis was it was going to be Roman food. So my expectation was that these Romans were going to tell me about Roman food. Right. What I didn't necessarily expect was the passion for cooking that the majority of these taxi drivers had. The majority of them were men. I would say that I had in the hundreds of people who I talked to, I would say I had fewer than 10 women taxi drivers. Okay. Um, And people would say, well, why taxi drivers? Why not just go down the street and ask people? Um, Because the majority of taxi drivers are Roman. So I just knew that of a profession that I had a, you know, 97% probability that the person was going to be Roman. Sure. So I I did not expect the passion for cooking that these men had because they gave me like very detailed instructions on how to prepare the dishes that they gave me, like right down to the size of the pasta, because, you know, like Barilla pasta, they all have numbers, uh-huh. like number five, number seven. They could tell me the number of the pasta to choose. So like a certain diameter spaghetti or whatever. So they were quite specific. And it made me wonder, like, are these single men, like, are these men cooking for their wives? Are they cooking at the, um, they have these little circolo, I don't know what that's called, like clubs here, 
that I guess men go to to play calcetto, which is kind of it's soccer, but it's not on a big field. It's on a smaller field. Uh-huh. And um, usually those are older men who are like, I don't know, 50 and older going out and just having fun. And so I guess at the Chiricolo, they must cook there for each other. Like, cause one of my colleagues is always telling me about stuff like that. Okay. Um, but anyway, that was the only surprise that I got from, from talking to these people. Yeah. Was that the men was were the... very passionate, not just about eating, but also about cooking. Sure. And we're talking about Roman cuisine. Can you sort of contextualize for folks who might think they're familiar with Italian cuisine? Like where does Roman cuisine, how would you define that to the uninitiated? So Roman cuisine, for me, the best, just to get somebody oriented, the best indicator would be your carbonara, uh-huh. your amatriciana, your gricha, which may be less known, and your cacio e pepe. And those are all, except for the amatriciana, which has a tomato base, and the carbonara, which has eggs, but it still has pecorino cheese or a mix of parmigiano. That's controversial. These are all permutations and combinations of pasta with hog jowl, pecorino cheese, black pepper. That's kind of what it is. That's And then the other part of Roman cuisine is also awful, mm-hmm. awful, however you want to right. pronounce it. Awful, awful. Organs. Awful, awful. <laughs> I'm, saying, I'm saying, yes, I'm saying A-W-F-U-L. Um, right. And... <laughs> Yes, it's, it's organ meat, so it's tripe, kidneys, uh, I don't even know how to say the words in English, but the milza, I don't know what that is. Okay. But anyway, it's sweet breads, uh, it's all sorts of stuff that I don't eat. Yeah, you, you're not you're not a fan of the awful, the awful awful. No, if it's on the inside of the body, you can keep it. Yeah, <laughs> okay. There's There's a tripe sandwich, is that a Roman thing or is that a Florence thing? That's Florentine. That's a Florentine sandwich. Okay. And when I studied in Florence, there was a tripe stand right down the street from the house and you could walk by. Uh, But I think they have different type. uh, It's like in long strips anyway. And you could walk by and they would like have the big like pasta fork raising a big thing instead of spaghetti, a big thing of tripe with the steam coming out of the pot. And I just wanted to vomit right in front of the stand to make them go away. (laughs) Yeah, I've been to Florence a couple of times and that's the one dish I feel like I'm always told I have to try and I just haven't taken myself to try it yet. Yeah, they Ugh. prepare it differently than Rome, though. I don't know okay. how theirs is prepared because I can't be bothered to learn because I won't eat it, but it's different. Like in Rome, it's prepared with tomato and um, pecorino cheese. I have uh-huh. a copy of my book here somewhere that I can double check, but I know that's what it is because when I shot the book, I had to reshoot that one. When we did it the first time, that's in the Quinto Cuarto. When we did the book the first time, the food stylist did that one and the pick, the shot had to be redone and I had to shoot it. This one, we're talking about this? Yes, yeah. that's mine. Yes, that's my picture. Uh-huh. It was so awful. The, the the taste. I mean, awful yeah. as in. No, I didn't. I didn't taste it. I could. I could smell it. You didn't taste it. Oh, no. the, the smell. Yeah. But it was awful that I had to fix something that I didn't want to eat. Sure, but it's such a quintessential dish. Yeah. Yes, and my husband loved it. He ate it all. Okay. I can't believe that. Oh, wow. tongue. Oh yeah. Cartilage and tendons. Tripe with tomato sauce, yeah. mint, and pecorino. I think in Florence they might do. Um, with uh, onion and something else. Um, oxtail. I will eat oxtail, though. Yeah, I like oxtail. But that's on the outside. Right. We'll be right back with the second part of our conversation with Christina Gill. Remember, you should follow us on Instagram at Salt and Spine. This week, there's a chance to win your own copy of Tasting Rome. Every Tuesday on Salt and Spine, we love sitting down with another of your and my favorite cookbook authors to tell the stories behind cookbooks. From Jacques Pepin and Nigella Lawson to Samin Nostrat and Carla Hall to today's guest, Christina Gill, Salt and Spine is the leading podcast featuring interviews with your favorite authors. Plus, we publish delicious and exclusive recipes, hold cookbook giveaways for listeners like you, and so much more. Salt and Spine truly brings cookbooks to life, and we can only do it thanks to listeners like you. You can join the Salt and Spine community today and support our effort to bring you top-notch interviews and the best cookbook content starting at just $2 a month. 
Find out more and join the Salt and Spine community at patreon.com backslash salt and spine. Salt and Spine is proud to have storytelling partners like Edible San Francisco. You can support food media right now with their new 80 recipe digital cookbook. Subscribe now to ensure you're not missing compelling stories on how San Francisco eats at edibleSanFrancisco.com. And now back to our conversation with Christina Gill, author of Tasting Rome. So you're writing this book, you're you're writing, f- photographing, putting these recipes together, tasting Rome, you're living in Rome. I sort of, maybe this is stereotypical of me, but I have this idea of like a, an Italian grandmother who has like never opened a cookbook in her life, right? Like the recipes were just passed down, they come sort of naturally. How do you sort of think about the role that cookbooks play in society? And did it change to like be right? Did it change at all for you being an American and living in Italy to think about that as you were writing this cookbook? Did that change your perception of the role cookbooks play at all? No, no. Do I surprise you with my answers that are just a flat no? Um, (laughs) No, no. I appreciate your honesty. (laughs) And I guess it, it didn't change for me because having worked on design sponge and working, you know, doing the recipes for people and being, you know, with the cookbooks, even though I hadn't written one, I really kind of understood the role that cookbooks played, but also the role that recipes played for people and how people engage with recipes. I co-authored this cookbook with someone. And so I just did half the recipes and she did like the essays that are in here and the head notes. And I would say that for me, having worked on Design Sponge for 12 years and having worked with people and having been there to respond, because I would say for a good seven or eight years, every single recipe that went on the website, I cooked it to make sure that I could walk people through it and that the recipe worked. After that, we kind of moved to doing excerpts from cookbooks. So it was less... Um, I I would just assume it's already vetted and I'm not going to fool with your recipe. I would have the author of the recipe answer the questions. Also, because I was styling the stuff for Design Sponge, then I had a a point of reference. So I already knew what people wanted in recipes, or not everyone, but that the majority, the average person. You know, they, they don't want a lot of text. They don't want something complex. They don't want a lot of ingredients. They don't, you know, if you've got a recipe that goes on to a second page, people are kind of probably going to skip over that one and go to the one that's real short that they feel confident that they can handle. So for me, I already had that concept when I was developing my half of the recipes. Like what's the simplest way to get this outcome and what are the fewest words to use to get this outcome? And I actually wanted the book to be much, much, much simpler than it is. It's a little bit above what I would use if I did a second cookbook. I see. You were really focused on the accessibility of the recipes. Right. And I think that my co-author had something more erudite in mind, and we met somewhere in between. Yeah, and and so you did co-author this book. We've talked about some of the experiences you had in co-authoring the book and your relationship with the publisher in the last conversation we had in a previous episode and folks can obviously listen to that. We don't need to rehash a ton of that. But I, I do think that that your the sharing of your experiences several months ago now publicly went sort of viral. You've become sort of a leading voice in terms of equity in the cookbook industry. I think people often are coming to you with questions about how the industry is doing, looking for your analysis. I wanted to just check in since that conversation we had, like, how are you doing with the exposure with like bringing light to this sort of really personal without putting words in your mouth? I think we we talked about it being a traumatic experience in many ways. How are you sort of doing now um, with having put that out there and some of what has come from that? Um, I think that, uh, so for me, I, I would just say that, let's say that chapter in a certain sense is closed and I'm moving forward now, Um, you know, just re-cauterize those wounds and moving forward. It's really a positive for me in the sense that I've connected with a lot of people who I wouldn't have connected with otherwise. A lot of friendly people, a lot of funny people, a lot of smart people, people like you who are funny, friendly, and smart. So 
it's just really nice to get to know people. It's also nice to be able to do something positive, to be able to raise awareness for issues, not just equity in the food space, but any other issue that is uh, important. So like you, food is a side hobby for me. It's not my main, it's not what pays the bills. Um, uh-huh. And because it's not what pays the bills, I have more leeway to experiment. And I'm not experimenting in the food space. I'm just like, if I'm interested in a certain aspect, I can go out and pursue it, experiment in that sense. So it's been good because I've had more opportunities to to meet people and try to get some projects off the ground. I've had stuff in a holding pattern for a little bit for reasons that we spoke about before. I think, you know, everybody is having some trouble in this time period because nature is not letting up for us. You've got the fires in California, you've got floods, you've got the virus, you've got, you know, how you're managing the virus, you've got work changes to get, you know, this year has been something that nobody ever could have predicted, not even in March, not even when things started shutting down, could people have predicted what's happening. So yeah, I think now I'm learning how to move in the shutdown space and to still be able to live without putting things on hold. I'm no longer waiting for normality to come. And I think it took a long time to get to realize that I was waiting for normality. And I actually feel quite optimistic and happy. And yeah, I, I, I'm feeling better. Yeah. Yeah, I think I think your analysis is right. And I think people have been we've all been on varying timelines in terms of when we sort of get to that moment of like, normalcy is not just around the corner after this year. So I think that really resonates. Where are you getting inspiration from these days? What's motivating you? And and that's an open ended question. But we are a show on cookbooks, too. So if there are specific cookbooks or food folks who are like really inspiring you, we'd love to hear that. So I think for me, I'm a slow burn. So I take a long time. Information goes in my head. A lot of it goes to the back of my head. It sits there and the information bits start to become friends and then they work together and then somehow or another they come out in a certain form. And so my inspiration is coming really from a macro view of things. And I know that's really, um, what's the word for it? Not specific. I'm not on the ground looking at things. I'm not looking for a perspective of being in the crowd. I'm looking for a perspective from as, from very high up, the balcony view, which is what I like to call it, of uh-huh. things. So when I look at something, I, I like to look at things that are very conceptual, photography projects, even cookbooks. I look at a cookbook. A cookbook could be very specific, but I metabolize it in a very macro way. And I think that's where I know that, again, I'm saying that's not specific, but I think that's how my brain is processing right now. And then it will, in my sleep, start to put pieces together And I will come up with a line to follow. And that's the best I can tell you. Because when I'm in this mode, information is just going, but I'm not looking at it up close. I'm looking at it from quite far away. I'm not taking it in at arm's length. I'm taking it in at a much further distance. I don't know if that makes sense. Like I picked up the, the book Flavor that came out the other day. And I... Is this the Otolenghi one? Yeah. And I have Nigel Slater's book. And I had uh, Bryant Terry's book. I have uh, Sammy and Tara's book. I have these books that, I mean, in that group, Nigel Slater's is an outlier in terms of flavors. It's His is quite simple. They're good flavors, but If I had to define it, that would be the Italian few ingredients. You make a symphony out of few ingredients, whereas these others are kind of layered lots of things together. And just looking at all these things after I came to flavor last and I just said, what's missing is a cookbook that is doing 
nondescript food that is really that's very aggressive with with flavor. And I wouldn't necessarily say that flavor is that book, but what I'm saying when I look at all that whole thing of books, there's a concept that I can see in all these books that are missing. Now it would take me time to sit down and write out exactly what it is that's missing. But I think, I don't know if I told you this before, but I think that a cookbook should be made when it feel fills a gap. I don't think uh-huh. people should just make a cookbook for the sake of making a cookbook. I'm not saying I don't think people should. I'm just saying for me, if the book fills a gap, then it has a reason to exist. And yeah. I definitely won't be the person making this flavor book because I don't think that I have the skills to do what I think is missing. But that's an idea, I guess, that if I could illustrate getting a macro view is looking at all these books from a very high level and noticing these pieces that are missing in all of them. I don't know if that sure. makes sense. Yeah, that does. It probably sense. does. It's probably con- confusing people, but yeah. So, you know, just laying out all these books, getting the concept of the book and then realizing, you know, if I superimposed all these books over each other, what would I see if I, you know, how, how can I categorize them? Do they jive with each other? Can the foods be mixed together? All these questions. Anyway, that's my yeah. conceptual way of looking at things. So I get inspiration from photography projects, other people's photography projects. I just ordered a couple of um, out-of-print photography books. Um, one of them is by Carrie Mae Weems. I can't remember the other artist. And um, there were two Black photographers, Black women photographers. But I get a lot of inspiration from photography books. Um, when I travel, I always go to photography galleries to, I do two things. I go to the city museum Uh to see how the city was and how it's evolved. And I go to photography museums to get someone else's perspective so that I can see what I'm missing. You said that gap that you identified in those books is not one you're going to tackle, but do you want to write, do you envision yourself writing another book? I don't know. I mean, that comes back to the finding something that I could be passionate about for mm-hmm. a year. Yeah. And get up every day and go and say, like, Annette Benning in whatever that movie, American Beauty, I'm going to cook this book today. <laughs> I'm going right. to cook this book. Right. Um, yeah. I know that's the wrong example, but that's what I think of when I think, you know, every day I go, it's like, I'm, I'm going to make these recipes today. That really resonates with people who are, who work as creatives, who are those of us who work in any sort of creative field. I think you have to have that sort of commitment to the passion of whatever the project is in order to really feel like it's something you want to do. I mean, yeah, if you can't force yourself to wake up every morning excited about something, so I think that resonates with people. At least it does with but that's me. Probably, well, I was going to say, that's probably the case for me and you because this is a side thing for us. And so it is icing on a cake. Whereas if someone does cookbooks as a profession, that is their job and that's their job. Whereas for us, this is filling that extra space. And so yeah. it, has, it has to be fun or we're not going to go to it. And so not everyone is is like us who just, you know, dedicates our time to food outside of our our regular, I shouldn't say regular, but our nine to five. Sure. So, that, that's totally right. Well, we always end with a little game. So I thought we and we always pick a little theme. We use these little cards here. So I thought I, I just love the fact that you're your first cookbook came out of these conversations with taxi cab drivers and the recipes that they loved and wanted to share. So I thought we'd play a little game in my mind. I'm envisioning it's like a food version of like cash cab. Do you know that TV show, that game show cash where cab? stuff pops up like money in the cab. I've seen, I've seen it like late at night. Basically. Yeah, exactly. It's always on late at night. Um, but the idea is we've got some stacks here. So we have a stack of vegetables. We have a stack of different proteins. We have a stack of flavors. These are like um, herbs, spices, other flavoring, flavoring agents. And then we've got a secret ingredient deck, which is kind of just wild card. So I thought we'd play a couple short rounds of this where we're pretending we're in a taxi cab in Rome. We've got a Roman taxi cab driver. 
we, I don't know, we blow a tire and we're stuck on the side of the road, but thankfully we've got like a gas stove in the trunk and like a full pop-up kitchen or something. And, and they happen to have grabbed something at the grocery store earlier. What might we make with that? How does, does that make sense? They probably do. They probably do. They do. Knowing knowing Italians. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, they do have the little propane stove ready to go. So um, let's let's say that we're we're in a taxi cab number one. Maybe we'll start with a vegetable. And I'm wondering if you could tell us what like you and the Roman taxi cab driver might conjure up if this was the vegetable you had to work with. Tell everyone I'm sitting at attention. What will we conjure up? And it's going to be kale. The taxi cab driver would obviously make a pasta with kale. And if he's Roman, he would make it spicy. And so... He would probably make me clean the kale. Is all we have is kale? Do we have onions? Do we have garlic? Do we have... I'm sure there's onions and garlic in the trunk with the propane stove and everything, right? Let's assume so. A master chef drawer of basic ingredients that I can pull out. So... I think so, yeah. So we'll, let's say, assume that this cab driver is like my husband, and he will put some onion of some sort, sautéed. Uh-huh some kale and some red pepper, hot pepper, and it'll just be a very right. simple pasta with cheese. And I, I have to say that my husband and I have been um, really like uh, have noticed that we've seen these things on TV. There was this really um, incredible bank heist here and the bank people um, left the tools out. And one of the tools that after they robbed the, all the safety deposit box was a Parmesan knife. And okay. we both looked at each other and was like, what the hell did they, did they like get winded and they had to sit down and eat Parmesan cheese while they were busting through this bank? So we had this joke. That's amazing. When they kept going through this whole thing, like one of the crooks was telling about how he collaborated with them. And it's like, yeah, they invited me to eat in Naples. And we were like, what is with these people? Like they always have to stop their crime to go eat. So we know that they have a a Parmesan knife and a big piece of Parmesan in the trunk. So we're going to grate some Parmesan. Of course. We're going to grate some Parmesan over the pasta. (laughs) So there you go. That sounds delicious. Spicy kale pasta with some bank robber Parmesan right on top. (laughs) (laughs) Should we do a protein, a flavor or a secret ingredient? Surprise me. Okay. Let's do a secret ingredient. Um, Okay. Oh, these, we have razor clams. You know razor clams? Yes. I've never eaten razor clams because I'm scared of them. But um, okay. I think what we would do is we would do something neat and grill them over. We would do something very simple. We would grill them and then just put parsley and lemon because that's really yeah. how they eat simply here. Yeah. Very simple. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, let's do one final round. Let's do a protein. Let's see what we have. Oh, tofu. Do we oh. find tofu in Roman cooking? Um, no. 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 How do you think a, a Roman taxi cab driver might handle a block of tofu if that's what they had to work with? He would throw it away. He would throw it out, yeah. <laughs> you would make me draw another card from the desk. <laughs> Let's try another protein. Okay, we got chicken. All right. <laughs> oh, they don't eat a lot of chicken here. Okay, is it a thigh? Is it a no. breast? I think that's open to interpretation. Okay, so we, yeah, because that looks like a loaf of bread, actually. So, um, I we know. Would, <laughs> we would use chicken thigh because, you know, dark meat. Right. And um, we, because that would go better on the little propane grill we have. And mm-hmm. we would have the chicken thigh with some of the leftover kale that we put in the um, sautéed kale at, that's spicy. Yes. And we would have, gosh, they don't really eat chicken here. Okay, I guess what I'm going to have to do for this guy is I'm going to have to batter it batter it in breadcrumbs. So I need to give you back the thigh and take a breast and pound it out. And make it into a um, what you would call um, cotoletta la milanese, which is actually not chicken, but I would do it with chicken. And then okay, I would yeah. make a sandwich for him, and I would make oh, a yes. sandwich for him with the kale yeah. that I put aside and the chicken on a rosetta, which is a classical Roman roll that has that flower type stamp on the top. 
Right. That sounds delicious. So he gets he gets a sandwich. They have weird sandwiches here. Yeah. Well, thank you for playing our little game. Um, I'm gonna. I will always remember the struggles of a Roman taxi cab driver with a block of tofu from this point forward. <laughs> he would be like, "No, I'll starve." Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Christina. This was so much fun. Thank you. And that's our show for today. Thank you so much for listening. As always, you can find bonus content from today's show and all of our episodes on our website, saltandspine.com. There you'll find two recipes from Tasting Rome, one for chicken with tomatoes and bell peppers, and another for hazelnut meringues. Remember, if you like hearing from your favorite authors on Salt and Spine, and I hope you do, please click subscribe wherever you're listening. You can also leave us a rating on iTunes, and you can join the Salt and Spine community and support our show at patreon.com backslash salt and spine. Our show today was produced by me, Brian Hogan Stewart. The Salt and Spine original theme song was created by Brunch for Lunch. Salt and Spine is typically recorded at the Civic Kitchen in San Francisco's Mission District. The Civic Kitchen is now offering digital classes for home cooks. You can find out more at civickitchensf.com. Thanks, as always, to Jen Nurse, Chris Bonomo, and the Civic Kitchen team, to Edible San Francisco, and to Celia Sack at Omnivore Books. We'll be back next week with more stories behind the cookbooks you love. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. Every weekday, I cover a bunch of stuff. Policies, social issues, news of the day, things you actually give a damn about. All right? But if you're listening to the podcast on the Facebook platform, I need you to make a switch. All right? Because that feature is going away on June 3rd. All right? June 3rd, that feature will go away. So I need you to jump on Spotify or Apple or wherever you get your podcast to make sure that I can still keep bringing you this indisputable content. All right, let's make it happen. Don't miss an episode of Indisputable. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com. <laughs>